coming up on this episode. He's like, well, like how cold is it going to get? Like 50s? And I said, no. I said, it's going to be 20s or teens. He's like, (laughs) wait a second. Like, I don't know. You know, he's kind of like, he had these, like, I don't know what I got myself into. Like, this guy wants me to work hard and then it's going to be cold and everything else. And I'm missing my mama and everything, but... You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of the Pursuit of Purpose. This is part two of the Bobby Moat and Ashanti Samuel story. Uh, So if you listened to the last episode... Uh, kind of got all the background on Bobby and uh, just what he's done in his career to get to where he is now. And this episode, we're going to dive deep into the relationship of Bobby and Ashanti and kind of how that all got started. So once again, I have my co-host, Brett Gingold. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for coming on again, Brett and Bobby. Thank you. For- yeah, It's great to be here. I think this is a great story, which I'll uh- very, very inspiring. Um, so just jumping right into what I'm, what I have to know, cause I've heard Ashanti's side now, what exactly happened like in the, I don't know if you have like crystallized this in your mind or maybe it wasn't even that important in the big scope of, in the big scheme of your relationship with Ashanti. But do you remember like the first, the very first words that you said back and forth with Bobby or with, uh, with Ashanti and what was that? What, like what happened? What were you doing that day? Um, how did he find you all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So I, I, I do remember it actually, which is funny cause there's a lot of stuff I don't remember that I should, but, um, I was, I was in Las Vegas and I was, uh, in between a couple of rodeos and I was, I was hanging out at a, at a friend's house. And so my phone rings and this guy calls me and he's just like, Hey, do you have any, uh, you have any upcoming schools? And I told him that I didn't, you know, the time of the year that was coming up was kind of the, you know, the heart of rodeo season. And so I don't schedule any clinics during that time. I usually have them kind of during the off, the off part of the season. And so I said that I didn't, you know, and he just kept talking and he said that he got, my number from Myron Duart, who's a, who's a bull rider. And, uh, and I said, well, I said, I can, you know, let you know when I do schedule one, but I don't have anything, you know, on the books. He said, all right, well, you know, I think we visited a little bit, but he asked if it was okay if he just kind of kept in touch with me. I said, yeah, that's fine. So then, you know, it's a, it's a week or two later and he calls me back and he's like, Hey, do you, um, do you ever think about doing any like private lessons? And I said, well, I said, I don't really. I said, I mean, it's not that I wouldn't. I said, but I just, you know, it's not really on my radar. I said, you know, where, where do you live? And he's like, well, I'm in Georgia. And I said, well, you know, that, that might be a problem because you're ways away from Oregon. And, um, but if you can get up there, you know, I'm, happy to happy to help how I can and so probably over the next oh I would say month six weeks he probably called me three or four more times and he 
you know, he would start, he would use the excuse. He was calling to ask me some fundamental question about bareback ride. You know, what do you do when you're, <laughs> when you're riding and you, and it feels like this or whatever. And, and so, you know, and I would, I would answer him and stuff. And, you know, the more I got to talking to him, the more I could tell that he, he really just wanted to have a reason to get out of where he was. And I'd kind of asked him what he did for work and I was feeling out what, you know, one, what kind of person he was. And then two, um, you know, did he have any experience with anything? Did he, you know, have any desire to work or do anything? Because I didn't want to say, you know what, come on out. <clears throat> and then he's, you know, a, a bad character or, you know, not mm -hmm. motivated or, or all the above. And so, you know, I could just tell that he was a, he was a good kid, didn't know anything, but, um, wanted to, you know, have a shot at something. And I, you just have to admire anybody who's, who's willing to not let their environment dictate where they go or how they do it. And, and so, you know, it's when it kind of came to the point where he said, I really would like to come to Oregon and, and meet you. I just said, you know what, I've got a, I have a guest room in our garage and I have always got plenty of work to do on our place. If you want to come up and try it out, you know, we can, we can see where it goes. And so he scratched and clawed together enough funds to, 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 to fly out there to Oregon. And so he showed up and he was, he's, he was tall. He was, you know, six foot three probably and had this big grin and was wearing a, he was wearing like this grass weaved hat with, and the visor was like, uh, like a trans, like, like transparent green, kind of like a, kind of like an old car dealer's hat. <laughs> it was just, it just struck me as odd. And he had funny shoes on and he could just, you know, but he was just happier than heck to be there and was really friendly and outgoing and, and really good natured to my kids. My kids were pretty young at the time and, you know, kids seem like they're a pretty good judge of character. Kids and dogs are, and the kids and the dogs both liked him. And so, um, he just, you know, he, he was real polite, um, you know, all the time. And so, you know, we started right out and I, I had a, I had a dummy, uh, like a mechanical, you know, riding simulator in my, uh, in my, in my barn. And so, you know, I started helping him on that and it was clear that he didn't really know that much, you know, he'd been doing it, but he hadn't had any instruction at all. And so, and I would tell him what to do and he was really hungry really hungry to learn, but I just knew that his size was going to be somewhat of a limiting factor because, you know, but at the same time, they told me I was too tall to do it too, but he's, right. you know, he's a couple inches taller than I am and, and he's got a, you know, size 13 boot, you know, he's, he's a big, he's a big kid, but he's athletic and he's trying hard. And, and so at the end of the day, anytime somebody's willing to listen and, try what you ask them to do and 
you know, put in the effort, I mean, you, you can't deny them. And so, you know, we've, we spend a lot of time on that, on that dummy working, you know, working through trying to teach them how to do it on the ground. Um, but you know, it was, you know, the more I talked to him, the more it was pretty clear that he, it took all of the money that he had to get out there. And so he shows up with a, with, with a gear bag, with a little bit of gear. Most of it, he could have probably left home because we replaced, you know, I replaced it with stuff that I had and a clothes bag and that's it. And he had spent all the money that he had to get there. And so, I mean, here we are. And so, you know, I, I hired him to do some stuff on the place to help me. We were just building a, a new, a new place there in Culver. And so we had plenty of outside stuff to do. And, and, and it was funny because like we were putting in, um, some utility ditch and stuff. I had a backhoe and, and we were, it was always like, you need a saw or you need a shovel. It's always on the other end of the place. And so I had always just been accustomed to like, if, if it's 50 yards away and you need something, you just jog over there and get it. And then jog back with whatever it is, you know, the, the, the shovel or the saw or whatever. And so I would be on the back owner and be like, Ashante, run and grab, you know, the shovel. And he would just saunter over there as slow as possible. <laughs> and then he would just saunter back. And I'd be like, can you go faster? <laughs> well, well, yeah, I can. I'm like, well, if you can, then why don't you? Because that's just kind of the nature of this. The faster we do it, the faster we can get it done. And he's like, well, where I come from, it's real hot and humid. And so you just try to like conserve your energy. And we had a lot of these conversations where he would just be like, this is how I'm used to doing it. And I'd say, well, that ain't going to cut it because <laughs> if you're going to help me, we're going to go fast and we're going to, you know, cause I don't want to be out here all day long waiting for you to walk over there or I might as well just do it myself. And so I, a lot of times I felt like I'm raising a kid because he's, you know, there's just stuff that he just didn't know and it's not his fault. He just didn't know it. And so I told him. But he was him, always very what, receptive. He was always receptive. He wouldn't get his feelings hurt when I told him something like that, but it was just, it was just like, it's real hot. And so you don't want to, you, you don't want to go too fast or you'll get hot and sweaty. And I said, well, I said, I got news for you. I said, it's, it's like October when this is going on. I said, about November, I said, you're going to want to do things to stay moving just so you can stay warm. He's like, well, well like how cold is it going to get? Like 50s? And I said, no. I said, it's going to be 20s or teens. He's like, <laughs> wait a second. Like that we had a lot of these moments where he'd look at me like, wait a second. He kind of like, um, are you messing with me? What was the, what was the old sitcom? It's like, what you talking about, Willis? He'd be like that. He'd give me that look. <laughs> and and so I'll be like, yeah, I'm sure I'm serious, Ashanti. It's it's gonna be cold and you're gonna have to work hard just to stay warm. He's like, ooh, I don't know. You know, he's kinda like he had these like I don't know what I got myself into 
moments like this guy's, you know, he's, he wants me to work hard and then it's going to be cold and everything else. And I'm missing my mama and everything, but, but he, he never <laughs> complained and he stayed hooked and, and he got where he's, you know, today he's a, he's a go getter. I mean, he works hard and nobody has to tell him, you know, anything about it. He just, he does, but he, that's uh, funny because I'm just thinking of, the and Brett, you can chime in. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this as well. But when we were talking to Ashanti, he his side of the story was basically like he called you out of the blue and just said like, "Hey, can you teach me to ride bucking horses?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> which is like I'm sure it sounds like at some point he did have to finally just like ask the question because he was definitely the instigator. That's what you're saying, right? He continued to stay in touch and probe and have another question for you. But in the end, he was the one that said, I really want you to teach me. I really want to come out there and meet you or whatever. Yes. Yeah, that that's, that's right. I mean, I had talked to him a number of times, but you know, at the end of it all, I just, what, what I could tell was at the root of it was he, he wanted to get out of where he was and wanted some help. Right. So, right. You have to admire that. How many oh, how many absolutely. people are in that position and will just make excuses or wait for somebody else to bail them out and it never happens. Right. And how that's the other thing I'm wondering is so you had a number of of interactions with him and how um how many uh how long was it like when you I'm assuming I'm just trying to put myself in your situation you're like putting little pieces of the story together with this random stranger that calls you. And I'm, was he revealing kind of like that, uh, he wasn't in a very good spot or didn't have a lot of, uh, coaching or I, I don't, I'm, in, I'm not sure if he mentioned whether or not his dad had passed away or was no longer in the picture. Um, how much of that was revealed or were you aware of before he actually came out to your place? Oh, not all of it, but I mean, I, I could tell enough that, you know, he just, when, when I would ask him, you know, like, what's it like where you're at? And he's just like, well, I mean, there's, there's either chicken farms where they raise the chicken or there's chicken like processing plants where they cook the chicken. And there ain't a whole lot else other than just people and concrete and buildings right right and chickens I'm like, <laughs> and it's hot and it's humid you know and you got and he says most of my friends are either drug dealers or in prison because they are they got caught you know you're either right. broke you're either broke because you refuse to you know join a gang and sell drugs or do whatever it is that they want you to do you know, it's, it's, it's one or the other. So you live in poverty or accept, you know, the only way out, the quickest way out seemingly is to, you know, join a gang and, and go that way. And so he chose neither. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to go just get out of here because I can see where it's going to get me. And so, I mean, right. that, to me, that took a ton of courage and was really, really smart. You know, I mean, that, he didn't, it wasn't like he had anybody around him that was making a like choice. You know, I wanted to be a bareback rider. And so I searched out people who rode bareback horses and, you know, they were, they were around. I was fortunate enough to grow up in an area where, 
where ranching and those are easy you know, to West, come by. Western way of life is on every corner, but but I mean he wasn't, and so he went. He you know he had to go to the opposite end of the country to find it. And you know it's a, the funny story about that was the, the kids loved him, and I got a couple of funny stories about that. But one that one time we were we were sitting at the table and we were eating dinner. And he would eat like as much as, I mean, imagine he's six, three and, and he's not a teenager anymore, but he eats like one. So, I mean, he could put away the food we're eating dinner. And my oldest son, Charlie, he had a placemat that was the, the United States and every state was a different color and had some, you know, the state flower or something to signify what the you know how you identify the state with like you would for a kindergartner or something who's trying to learn his his geography well so we were sitting there and we had just kind of gotten done eating dinner and we were kind of visiting and he's looking at this placement and he's like he's like damn he said i was way over here in georgia and now i was way up here in Oregon, he says, that's a long way. He's, I said, yeah. I said, did you realize it was diagonal straight across the United States? He said, no. I, he says, hey, let me ask you something. He said, whenever <laughs> I called you and asked you to come out there, he said, did you know I was black? Like he's as serious as a heart attack when he asked me this. And I said, yeah. He said, how you know? I said, well, I knew from the first time you asked me, he said, <laughs> and Kate, my wife just about falls out of her chair and laughed. He said, what I asked you, I said, from the first time you asked me, I knew <laughs> and he didn't, <laughs> and he didn't he, get you or say it kind of went, it kind of went over his head because he, he's, he was asking me and he doesn't hardly, <laughs> he doesn't talk like that so much anymore, but he was fresh out of Georgia where everybody talks like that. And it was just, it was funny. Another time, that's awesome. Another time, you could see into the barn from our house, and uh, Ashante was out there at the barn, and Kate, my wife, was asking Charlie, my oldest son, who was probably he was I don't know how old he. I mean, he was in elementary school, early elementary school, and she had she'd asked him, "Hey, do you see your dad around anywhere?" And he says, "Yeah, he's out there in the barn." And she looks out there and she's like, she saw that it was Ashante. And he says, wait a second. That's not dad. I thought it was dad. It's a different shirt. And so (laughs) the point is, is Charlie didn't notice the color. He had no reason to say, you know, this guy's black and this guy's white. He just like, this guy's wearing a different, you know, a different shirt than, than his dad. And why that's significant to me is because, you know, for one, around Culver, there, there, there aren't a lot of, you know, African-Americans. But, but Charlie didn't see it that way. My, my kid saw it like he was just like, we're all the same. He didn't see the color. He just saw that the shirt, we were wearing a different color shirt. And I thought that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, but, but Ashante was, was like, he was so out of place when he came there and, 
you know, like we, we pulled up to a stoplight one time. He was going to some rodeos with me and we stopped and we looked over there and he said, he said, look at that. I said, what's that? He said, there's a black guy driving that car. Like it was <laughs> like, it, like it stood out. I said, really? Right. He's like, yeah. He said, we both give each other the same look. I said, what's that? He said, I looked at him and like, what the heck? There's a black guy. And he looked at me and thought the same thing. He's like, we, <laughs> we're out of here? place. Yeah. Right. But I mean, in Georgia, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that way, but I mean, and, and when he would, when he would come into situations, you know, especially kind of around, around rodeo and some of the places that he would go where th- there aren't a lot of black people currently, people, I think early on would, would treat him a little differently. And he was just so outgoing and happy and friendly that they just had to accept him. And, Mm. you know, within a real short time, everywhere that you went, people just, they they called him tall. I mean, kind of his nickname tall. And he was just, everybody liked him. Everybody accepted him and he just fit in, you know, quickly. You know, but, but, but imagine, that's awesome. Imagine what, how somebody else may handle that. Imagine how I can imagine how I would have handled it. If the shoe was on the other foot and I went to where he's from being myself, I would feel as it would have been hard to awkward. be comfortable. You're saying no doubt about it. And I would have, yeah. it would have been hard to be comfortable and I would have probably been pretty reserved and, you know, it would have been, it would have been different. Right, absolutely. He handled it better than I think I would have. Chris and I uh, spoke a little bit before uh, our discussion tonight about the sensitivity of the race Mm -hmm. uh, component to this relationship. And um, when we asked Ashante, he said that your reaction on the telephone was immediately accepting. And uh, Chris and I both found that quite remarkable that there was no thinking twice about it. You essentially said, sure. No problem. I think uh, the race issue has been something that um, has been somewhat uncomfortable to discuss, but quite frankly, I think is the most important part about this this story, or at least in my perspective. In a time in our country when there are places where uh, minorities are being persecuted and when our leadership doesn't necessarily appreciate how important they are to our society. I, I think uh, this is a good story to um, uh, show, the, show the importance of race relationships. Well, I mean, we're all the same. We can't control where we, where we come from. And no different than Ashante couldn't control where he came from, what family he came out of, what lineage he is. He has no control over that. In fact, he was born into a tough situation, but he took control over the thing that he could control and he didn't dwell on the things that were out of his control. And I think that's, what's so remarkable about it. I mean, I know plenty of people who, you know, by all counts are privileged and they're unhappy and all they can do is dwell on what they don't have or how hard they have it. And I have no sympathy for people like that on the, you know, at the I mean, but you understand um, the challenges that he has, you know, there are people at rodeos and there's people in 
everyday offices and everyday life who aren't don't see it the same way you do. I mean, you're I don't want to say you're different. You're just who you are, but other people don't see it that way. No, I I I know that, and that's unfortunate. But I mean, somebody right's right and wrong's wrong. I just I don't think that you you let some some determining factor that somebody had no control over dictate how you treat them. It just it's that's not fair because I mean, just like I said, if I was put in his position, if the shoe was on the other foot, and I was sent to you know, there's racism that goes the other way. If you put me in the heart of Atlanta, Georgia, I am looked at like I'm completely out of place. And I know how I would feel about it. I've been in places like that, you know, briefly. And and it's it's really awkward. And you just try to make the, the best of it and maybe just get out of there. But he just chose to come right into it. You know what I mean? And just embrace it. Never... He never, ever complained about it. He would make jokes about it, you know, like somebody look, you know, somebody looked at me funny or whatever, you know, and he would he would be lighthearted about it. But he never was like, "Hey, you know, so and so, they, you know, they did me wrong, you know, and I think it's because of my race." He didn't complain about it. He just he didn't make excuses. He just made. You know, he's he's just made a habit of making lemonade out of lemons everywhere he goes. And I think that that should be an inspiration to 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 everybody else. And I think that's why you guys have kind of gravitated towards the story. And I'll tell you this, I just got done doing a I did a bareback clinic last weekend in South Texas that FCA, which is um which is really big in high school and intercollegiate like stick and ball sports. It's a ministry and it's, I think it's a really great program. They haven't been involved in rodeo until now. Well, they just got into rodeo and their first experiment in rodeo was a, was a bareback and saddle bronc riding clinic. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of it. There were kids from all over or young men. And there was a, there was a, there was a black kid there from Watts, California, which is just, you know, right border like Compton. It's the worst part of town in Compton. And his, uh, his family, three brothers and three sisters all sleep on the floor at night because there's so many drive by shootings, bullets fly in the windows and the safest place in the house is on the floor. Oh my gosh. And that's just the way it is. And, and you just, you know, you don't go anywhere alone. You got to be sure to be back home, you know, from school before the sun goes down, the street lights turn on because it's just like all hell breaks loose. And here, here we're living in a, you know, he's living in Los Angeles and it's supposed to be a civilized modern city. And you got to sleep on the floor for fear of bullets flying in your window. And, and his story was a little bit like Ashante's that he, he hasn't got anybody in his life that has any remote interest in anything Western or horses or anything else. But he saw a video on YouTube about it, followed me on Instagram, saw the flyer for the clinic and scraped up the money to come out there and, and learn how to ride bareback horses and was real talented, really athletic, tried hard, did everything that I asked him to do. And I'm really excited to see how, you know, 
uh, how he's going to do. Patrick Liddell's his name, and he's a he's a super super young man, and I think that I think that guys like Ashante and guys like Patrick, I just hope that they do good and that people, you know, that it's known publicly and that people will see them and hear their story and be inspired enough to say, you know what, I could accept the situation I'm in and then just, just give into it like everybody else does. Or I could say, you know what, I'm, I'm cut out for more than this and do whatever it takes to get out of it and, you know, follow your dreams. Because I mean, that's what it's all about. I think that's the American dream is to be able to set your mind to do something and, and go out and do it and, and have the opportunity to do it. And when you talk about racism or you talk about people who have a limiting mindset, that's, that's as un-American as it gets. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point, Bobby. And I think, um, I think we need more people that, uh, understand and realize that. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, and hopefully by telling this story, we can inspire people and, uh, make people more aware. The one question I had for you, Bobby, about this, has anyone treated you differently about your uh, relationship with Ashante? Have you come across people who have, um, demonstrated or been aggressive towards you or um, essentially uh, looked down looked on upon you by the by taking Ashante in or at your relationship with him no I mean I wasn't looking for it but if they did I didn't care but I mean I, I never had anybody just come up to me and say hey you got you know so and so and I don't like that I mean I but fortunately the position that I was in, you know, especially at the time, who's, what are they going to say to me? You know, and, <laughs> and so I, I took him around with me and he, I took him to some rodeos and he, I mean, every time I take him to a rodeo and he would just fall in with people who I know he idolized because they were, you know, they were the top pros in the game at, at the time. And, and he just, he just acted just like just one of the guys everywhere he went and, he never gave anybody any reason to um, think twice about it. Mm. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, uh, you know how, if you don't have a pass or a ticket or whatever to go into a, a, an event and you're like, you've been there, you know, it's like the old saying, like walk in, like you own the place. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like not, not in a disrespectful manner at all, but that's kind of the way he, that's kind of the way he operates. He just, he doesn't, he doesn't assume that any, you know, he, I think he assumes the best out of people first. And I think that that's opposite of how a lot of people who want to play the victim do. I think they want to assume the worst and you have to, you know, you have to prove otherwise, but he, he, he doesn't do it that way. He, he assumes the best out of people and, and just goes in like he owns the place. And when one of the, this is kind of a, I don't know if this is something that you've thought about, but do you remember what, so what year would this have been that Ashanti first reached out and then when he ultimately came out to your place? It had to have been like, like 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. So it was before you won your second world title? 
I think, yes. And so this is kind of a, I don't know if this is something that you've thought about, but um, <clears throat> I'll tell a, the example that I'm thinking of is a friend of my wife uh, who was a CrossFit athlete and she had worked super, super hard and training to go to the CrossFit games. And um, she was, uh, she always did like partner uh, competitions and she finally decided and she, my wife was following her on Instagram and she finally decided that this past year or that leading up to this past year, she was going to, you know, open up a gym and really start investing in training and coaching others and, uh, ease off on the, just the intensive, uh, workouts that she was putting herself through. And ironically, or because of that, I would say she ended up having her best year ever in CrossFit. Um, and I don't know if she would have said this, but it's just something that I've thought about before is that at a certain point of success, uh, it's almost like the next level of success is you, there's like a requirement to some degree of giving back or sort of turning around behind you to see who else you can help out. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to, I don't know if it's like subconscious or, um, opens you up to working even harder yourself or just makes you feel better and gives you more energy so you can work harder. You know what I mean? Have you ever thought about that, the timing of that and just kind of you giving so freely of yourself to help someone out and help them in their own career? Not that it's like you weren't working really hard, if that makes sense, but mm -hmm. just the timing of all this happening seems kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And you know, when that, when your attention is taken off yourself and it's, it's put on helping others, then it, a lot of times you do better. You're doing things for the right reason. You're, you know, your heart's in the right place. I think all of those things um, are applicable and I, and I, and I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think that that's when, when we've been fortunate enough to have, have success, like, you know, like I have, I mean, I, I think it is, I think it is just part of it. I mean, I think it's a natural thing to do is to try to help others because I certainly didn't get to where I got to on my own. You know, if it hadn't been for people taking, you know, taking time out of their schedules and, you know, helping to build me up, then I wouldn't have accomplished anything. So, I mean, it's just, I think it's part of, I think it's part of the process. Right, right. Um, and then I'm also curious, uh, and again, this is not, or I guess it's more looking into your um, your wife. Her name's Kate, right? Yes. What, uh, I'm just imagining uh, funny conversations that, or if there were any kind of hesitancies on, and this is aside from the race thing at all. It's just the fact that you have two kids and you, you say, Hey honey, I'm thinking like, did you ask beforehand or did you just say, Hey, I just told this kid that he can come up and stay with us. Hopefully that's okay. <laughs> okay with you. Or would, did she have any like concerns or like, did you have any discussions about, um, basically opening your house up to a stranger for, and it was a definite period of time initially, right? You just did, you didn't say hey, come out 
it was the initial agreement I'm sure was more spelled out, but then you ultimately decided to extend that because of how well it was going, right? Well, I mean, it, at first it was like, well, come, let's, let's give it a week or two and try it out and see what happens. I mean, it clear, you know, certainly the thoughts in the back of my mind, what happens if this guy is just a disaster and I'm stuck with it? Um, you know, I, I guess I'd have dealt with it, but I just, I didn't, I had a, I had a good feeling about it. I mean, if I didn't have any peace in my heart about it, I wouldn't have done it. And she and I, she and I did talk about it before he, before he came out and, uh, she was good with it. I mean, she, she's, she's the same as me. She's like, if somebody wants to, somebody's willing to do whatever it takes to try to get into a better situation that's you know and they're in a bad situation why wouldn't you help them so you know we didn't have any we really didn't have any disagreement about it and then i'd have to ask her how long he actually stayed but it was quite a while you know we we got to the point where at some point you know he's working and making money and stuff and it's like you know it wouldn't be a bad idea if you got your own place <laughs> kind of felt like we kind of raised him, you know, but right. you know, and there, there were always, there was always little stuff like, like, okay, he needed, he needed a vehicle. Okay. Well, so he's like, man, I was driving by this lot and I saw this, this cool truck and it had great rims and whatever. And I'm like, well, how much money do you have? He's like, I got like $600. I got enough to put a down payment on. I'm like, listen, I said, I am not going to let you finance a vehicle. I said, why don't you find <laughs> something that you can afford, you know, find something for $600, but don't, you know, like we went round and round about it. He's like, yeah, but this, you know, what I can buy for that, it's not going to be very nice. I said, I don't care if it's nice or not. I said, you'll own it. I said, what you can buy, what, what they'll sell you at a lot that they'll finance to you isn't going to be very nice either. It might be shiny when you buy it. I said, but it'll break down and you'll owe more than it's worth. And so, you know, it was like, I had to kind of hammer that in his head a little bit, but I just wasn't going to, cause I mean, I think he might even ask me if I'd co-sign for him. I'm like, absolutely not. Like right, right. the same conversation I've had with, with my kids. I'm like, I'm just, I'm not going for it. I said, because that's a trap. And so he was, he was, he went along with what I said. He bought a little red Chevy, uh, blazer, like the S 10 size. And it was like, you had to push a button on the dash and turn a key to make it start. And it had some little quirks and stuff, but it was his. And the fact that it was his, he was pretty proud of it. And he took care of it. And he drove the heck out of that thing before he got his next thing. And I would, and I'm pretty sure to this day, I don't think he operates on any debt. I think he owns his equipment. You know, he's got some backhoe and some different trucks and some different equipment that he makes money with and he owns it and it's not new, but who cares? He owns it. And so I just think that, you know, that's one of those things that I'm, I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to explain that to him because if you just go along with what you, you know, kind of what the flow of the world is, you're just going to, 
you're going to start right out, you know, in debt to some finance company and never be able to get out of it. It just, it's an endless cycle. And so, um, you know, so we had some of those conversations where again, I felt like I was raising a 22 year old son, but, um, but he listened. I mean, he was perceptive and he did it. So right, right. if, if there had ever been a time when, when he just wasn't willing to listen or apply anything, then I'd have probably prompted him to find his own way. But, but he didn't, you know, he was always appreciative and he was always receptive. I'm also curious, do you feel like you have in your own career, um, what are some things, maybe there's one instance or a couple of, of times that you kind of feel that maybe it wasn't as radical as the move that Ashanti did. Um, but it was, you know, he, in, I guess the way I would describe it, he knew where he wanted to be and where he was at, wasn't getting him there. And so he just kind of, you know, started reaching and searching for something that was going to get him closer to his ultimate goal, which I'm sure evolved over time. Mm -hmm. But do you have stories or instances in your own career of some of the more radical things that you did to, um, get to where you wanted to be? I mean, nothing quite like his. I think that, you know, I, I've, I've kind of been a person that if I've set my mind to do something, I mean, I've done some pretty, you know, I think some of the things that I've been able to be a part of are remarkable considering where I came from and what I've started out with to, you know, and so, um, but, but I mean, I, I think what he did, you know, took a, took a lot of faith and, you know, was, probably a big risk. And I imagine what his mom thought when he said, I'm, I'm moving to Oregon to live with this guy and learn how to be a bareback rider. I'm sure she, she probably questioned his sanity when he said he was going to do it, but he, right. And he actually said it wasn't just his mom. Uh, he had a number of friends that basically were worried of his safety and again, this is just all these perceptions and assumptions of the racial tension. Mm-hmm. But he definitely said that he had friends that were like, dude, you're going to get killed or at least hurt um, just because you're going to central Oregon, which even today is not the most diverse place. But, you know, it wasn't any better 10, 15 years ago. No, it was way. I mean, it's changed a lot around there in 10 or 15 years. But. But, uh, you know, he, I could identify with, with the fact that he, you know, he'd tell me he'd call home and he talked to old friends and stuff. And they were just like, they weren't like, you know, good for you. They were like, like he had an old girlfriend back there that was just like, just bitter about it. And it's like, you'll never make it, you know, you might as well come home now. Cause they're, you know, they don't need you and just mean and that probably just fueled the fire. And I can relate to that because I had plenty of people tell me I couldn't do it and I'd never make it too. And so that was just, you know, fuel for my fire. So I could relate to that. Right. Right. Um, hmm. 
What is the other thing that I think that's interesting? There's a number of things that you, in looking back, you I feel like you probably had a significant impact, even in things that were minor that maybe ultimately shaped Ashanti's perspective or approach, like the the debt idea just that most people are not taught that and especially if you don't have a dad and all you see is your friends buying nice stuff and you start financing things i think that's a really interesting uh tidbit or nugget there what do you think mentally um you were able to teach ashanti that helped make him successful in um bareback writing in particular did you guys ever have any discussions or conversations about how to approach things from a, like in your mind, as opposed to just the physical uh, requirements? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think there's a kind of a parallel a little bit with this, with this mental and physical principle, but, but in bareback riding, it's like, it's like, even when it goes really right, it still hurts. And this is one of the hardest things to teach because because people will, when they're learning, they'll, they'll start out doing what you ask them to do or what they're trained to do. And then, and then it's like, it hurts. And so they kind of stop doing it, you know, and they, they sit up instead of, you know, leaning back and spurring the horse, they like sit up and, and, or maybe get off. And you ask them like, why did you quit? Well, because, you know, my, I got, felt like I got whiplash or, my arm got jerked on it's like yeah that's that could happen every jump i mean that's the way it works it's just but if you want to get from point a to point b you have to be willing to take that little bit of whiplash or that jerk or pull or whatever it is to get there and and so i think that while that's applicable to bareback riding and you just have to learn how to just block it out and do whatever it takes to get the job done I think that that is also applicable to, you know, him starting, you know, the different businesses that he has, the, you know, whatever it is that he wants to tackle. And so we talked about stuff like that because, you know, I mean, I think that, I think that he wanted to, he wanted to be a cowboy more than anything. He chose bareback riding because he could, he could get into it. He could do it, but you know, I could tell at some point that like he got hurt a, a couple times pretty good. And, you know, I could tell that he wasn't just, just adamant that he was going to stay hooked and ride bareback horses, but he needed, he needed a, he wanted to be a cowboy. He needed a way to fit in and wanted to, you know, pursue something. And so, you know, when we would talk about things like, you know, like decisions that he was going to make, you know, I would talk to him about, you know, just like, just like we did it with how, how it might ap apply to, you know, just life in general and the decisions that he made. So, um, I don't know. I, I didn't really think I was full of all that much wisdom or anything, but I mean, I would just repeat the stuff that I was fortunate enough to hear from, you know, from the, people that influenced me. Right, right. Um, but, uh, Brett has told me that um, your training regimen, um, you were doing things that were far more intense, uh, almost like CrossFit style stuff and cross training and running and, and whatnot. Do you feel like um, 
Well, first of all, where did that, um, what made you kind of go that approach that maybe other cowboys or bareback riders at the time weren't really um, diving into or to the depth that you were? Well, I, I had uh, either an ongoing chronic nagging injury that I would be rehabbing or I had something that was acute that I was, you know, adding to the list. And so I would go to physical therapy and they would give me a list of exercises that I would do. And I'm really not very good at, you know, like, like, <laughs> like the thing that always happens in physical therapy that, and I've had a couple of physical therapists since that kind of understand me, but they never ask you to do enough and it just drives me nuts. So be like, do this. And like, you won't even break a sweat. You're like, well, can I do more? Well, no, that's, that's good for today. We'll see you in two days. <laughs> and so then I would take these exercises and I would go home and I would like multiply it and I would do a lot of it. Well, so then, and then I ran and I've never, I've never liked working out. In fact, I don't like it at all. And I don't like running, but I would run because you could run no matter where you were. If I was, you know, staying in a motel six in St. Louis and I didn't have any gym equipment with me, I could still go run. And so I would run. And then it was like, I would try to incorporate these, you know, this physical therapy, you know, probably on an amplified level from what I was supposed to do. And then I would, you know, just, I just kept picking up different exercises, but as long as I was going to do it and as much as I disliked doing it, I was going to stay really busy the whole time. And so, you know, my, my workout might be something different every day, but it would, I would never stop moving. And I would just, you know, I, I would try to set up, uh, you know, set up circuits and, you know, several different exercises in each circuit and just try to just, just pound through it and never stop moving. And so, I mean, that was kind of, that was just basically how I would do it. I probably did a lot of things wrong, but I always figured that if I'm doing something it is better than nothing. Got to help. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so how much would you say that in this time that Ashanti was there with you, how much were you a coach to him versus just kind of him picking up the majority of the stuff like almost from osmosis, just being around um, cowboys and bareback riders and then, you know, uh, watching what you guys do. You know what I mean? I think he got a lot of it through observation. I mean, I tried to, you know, be, I think that, I think that I get frustrated with people that you have to point out the obvious too much. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like him walking over to pick up that shovel versus running. Like if, if I got to wait for you to walk over there, I might as well just go do it myself. I'm, I'm a little bit that way anyways. And so, and so the reason I say that is because if I had to sit down and like spell it all out for him every time, I don't think I would do that. Mm. And so if he asked a question, I would bend over backwards to answer it. But he had to probably learn a lot just through osmosis, through being around it. But I mean, that's all he was around. Right. And so, you know, he, he, if he was around me, he was around me and he was around, you know, other guys who were the best at what they do. And, you know, most of the people like 
that that he worked for, you know, outside of me were people that I recommended him to that I knew were good people and had good work ethics. And so, you know, he spent a lot of time around around John Hammock also. And so I knew what he was getting there. And so I mean he was he was surrounded by he went from being in a bad environment, surrounded by probably the wrong kind of people to a, a really a good environment surrounded by a lot of the right people. Right. Have you heard the, it's one of my favorite quotes, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with? I have, I have. And I mean, I think it's also like the, you know, the, in Proverbs, it's uh, iron sharpens iron. And I think that that's, that's, you know, we're saying the same thing, but I mean, or, you know, your, your, your quote is really, it really speaks to the fact that if you're around the wrong kind of people, you'll pick that up just as easily. Right. Exactly. And so, but most of the time when people are in that environment, they're not, they don't have the ability to see outside of it or make the choice to get out of it. And that's, again, that's what I think is so awesome about his story. What advice would you give to someone that is wanting to accomplish their goals or whatever it is um, in how to go about making changes to, to get to those? Well, I think if you know, if you have an idea of what your goal is, and even if it changes, like Ashante's goal changed, it started out to be a bareback rider, you know, and, and I would imagine, you know, along with that to be a, you know, a really good bareback rider. And then it's, then, then it changed and it evolved. But, but I think starting out with, with a goal, you have a desire in your heart. There's something that you want to do and don't, don't limit yourself by, by anything that you've that you've thought or heard but just be able to say okay this is this is my goal write that goal down and then like go almost in chronological order backwards to where you are now surely if you know if my goal was to be a world champion bareback rider it wasn't like well tomorrow I'll do that it was like tomorrow I have to start taking steps to get closer to doing that. So what are these steps? And I would, I would kind of lay it out. I mean, it'd be like, you know, work out like, well, cause I wasn't okay. Well, I don't like to work out. Well, who cares? You know, wake up early before you have any distractions and run two miles and do this. And so then it would be like, you know, beyond that, it would be like, um, you know, qualify for your circuit finals and win your circuit. Well, you know, it would be like stair steps. You just stair step your goals and, and, and just work diligently toward that and run everything through the filter of, is it going to help me accomplish my goal? And if the answer is no, then you just don't do it. You know, I, I mean, it's not like, you know, you just, you just have to, you have to be willing to pare away the things in your life that are keeping you from, from progress. Sometimes it's relationships, right? I mean, there are certain relationships that you have to identify and say, you know what? I like this guy, but spend a lot of time with them isn't helping me get closer to my goals. And you just, you just have to make those decisions. And how critical would you say that it is to have a single goal? I mean, obviously there might be sub goals, but you know what I'm saying? Like if you're saying, if you would have said, I want to be a bareback rider or like a, a world champion bareback rider, 
you didn't have another goal of like, I want to start a business and, or whatever. Maybe that was in the future. You know what I'm saying? Just feel like the splitting your priorities, uh, can be conflicting. Um, and it seems like everybody that I've talked to of any amount of success was very focused on a single big objective that then, you know, they were working towards and with smaller goals, goals heading to that. Yeah. I think, I think if you're going to set, you know, depend, you, you got to set a goal that's scary enough that it, that, that it makes you step outside of what you're comfortable doing. And so if you do that, then it needs to be, it's probably a singular thing that, that this is my focus. You know, if it's, if your goal is to see if you can eat this pizza in an hour, then I don't, you know, I mean, that, that's not, that's not enough to make you be, um, I guess that's a bad example because it could make you uncomfortable, <laughs> but, but I mean, something that's going to test your, really test your limits, you know, I mean, isn't it interesting though, how when, when people take notice of someone who's been successful, it's like when they're standing on the mountaintop, but they didn't get to the mountaintop without going through the valleys and it's in the valleys is where you really learn you know, all of the valuable lessons, it's never comfortable when you're in the, those situations, you know, when you're in the valley, there's pressure and it's, you know, you, you, maybe you can see where you want to go. Maybe you can't, but nonetheless, you, you, you learn, you learn the skills, you know, in the valley that, they get you to the mountaintop and everybody just sees when you're on the mountaintop and they just say, I would like to have that. Well, would you really, would you really like to have what it took to get here? And that's, that's the thing that really separates, you know, it's, it, it, it separates the, the many from the few. And that's what, you know, like when we talk about Ashante, I mean, the first step that he took was the hardest step. And that's the thing that keeps most people in their limited, you know, mindsets. And so, I mean, you know, when you ask, you know, was it, was it a hard decision to make inviting a stranger, you know, into our home? It wasn't, it wasn't that hard for me because I knew he was willing to take, he was willing to take the hardest, the most important step, the thing that nobody else seems like they're willing to do. And so, I mean, I, I didn't sit around and, and analyze it to that, you know, to a granular level, but I, but I knew enough to know that. Mm, that's really good. No, I think that that's a, uh, well, I guess the one thing that's coming to mind for me immediately is the reality is that a lot of these decisions that some people would agonize over, uh, the reality is you can just say, well, I'm going to try this. I'm going to give it a shot. Like, let this kid come out here. And like the worst case scenario really isn't that bad. But I, the reason I think this is interesting that you saying you didn't agonize about it, you had your own goals and things that you were focusing on. And it was more of like, why? And again, maybe this is projecting too much, but I'm assuming it to some degree, some degree, it was why agonize or put too much energy into this decision. If this guy wants to learn or get better, sure. Come out. And if it doesn't work, leave, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think you're right. Bobby, have you ever gone out to see Ashante's home and where he grew up? In Georgia? No, sir. I haven't. 
I've been in Georgia and I haven't really been inclined to go back for the heck of it. <laughs> and now that you're living in Texas, do you and Ashante still communicate? And has there been ever any dialogue about how far he's come? You know, once he, once, once he kind of decided that he was going to pursue, you know, some contracting in this, in this organic farming and the things that he and his, his wife do, you know, I've just told him like, like you need to realize how far you've come. Like, it's remarkable to me. I'm proud of, like, I'm really proud of him for what he's done because he's made a lot of the right decisions, but I mean, he's just come a long ways. And had he not made the first decision, who knows what his story would be, but I don't think we wouldn't be talking about him today. I definitely agree. I think that he, uh, and when I, when I went out and saw his farm, you said you have not been to his farm. Oh, I have. Yeah. Oh, you have. Yeah. It's, uh, it just blows me away to realize that. And I feel like if the customers, I'm sure the customers know a little bit about it, but if they really knew where this guy who's serving them up these delicious vegetables and meats and everything, it's absolutely incredible. Um, and I also, I mean, that actually, this is another thing that I was thinking when I was talking to him. He works so much. Like, he did, he's doing tons of businesses. It was the hardest thing in the world to get, you know, an hour of his time to talk. But he just works and works and works. And um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you've thought about this. And I haven't, I didn't ask him this directly. But I almost feel like he's working, uh his motivation may come from his background of just wanting to make sure that he's never anywhere even close to where he was. And that's driving him to a level of output or effort that is far beyond what most people could even imagine they're capable of, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, I think he's just, he's established some, some good habits and he's surrounded himself with good people. I mean, his wife is, Sarah's tremendous. Um, don't, you know, don't discount her, her, uh, involvement in that, in that farm, you know, she's, she's really done some remarkable things also. And he's worked right alongside her and learned a lot. And, and, you know, the two of them together are a team. And I mean, that's, that's, unfortunately, that's also an anomaly in today's age and it shouldn't be, but it is, but, you know, I mean, I, I think they've got a, they've got a great marriage and, you know, they've built a, a, a really cool thing there. And I know when, um, you know, they deliver, they deliver organic produce to, you know, to some, and I know they've been doing this for a long time, not as one of their advertised things, but they were, they were taking it to people who were sick and needed it, you know, and couldn't go get it. And I know like I had a real bad accident and was hurt <clears throat> i had my, my pancreas got s split and i was i was hurt pretty bad for a while and they were delivering vegetables to the house i mean just basically care packages weekly you know nobody wow. told them to do that you know but mm. but but they give you know they they give back all the time they're they're focused you know not on self but they're focused on others and i think that's partly why they're successful well, Bobby, thank you so much for your time and, and telling your story about not only yourself, but Ashante. It, uh, to me, this is a very inspiring 
um, tale. It's an American story. And I think you've uh, enlightened us wholeheartedly about who you are and about uh, the, 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 I don't know if you consider this a good deed, but certainly in my eyes, this has um, been able to help Ashante and achieve his goals and essentially allow him to uh, accomplish things that probably many of us and many of the people where he came from did never think he could uh, could do that. So I think this is, um, this is really an amazing story and I'm hoping to, that we can tell it to everybody and, and inspire others. So thanks so much for your time as always. You've been always generous of uh, your time to us and, and a friendship to me. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for reaching out to me and I'm honored to have whatever role I've been able to play in the process so far. So, right. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, I just, this, I'm very, very, very appreciative of, uh, the, how long this has taken to get this story, uh, from you, uh, which I am just very, um, happy that you've been able to do that and who knows where this is going to go. But like Brett had mentioned, the, this whole thing kind of unrolled because, uh, Brett had, you know, put this little bug in my ear and everybody that I've talked to in the film world has been intrigued, but really wanting to hear your side of the story too. Um, as we're trying to put together what, what this could possibly look like if it does become a documentary. So, um, thank you for the time that you've put in so far. And I'm sure you haven't heard the last of us, <laughs> unfortunately. All right. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad I get to tell part of the story. I mean, like I said, I, I hope as I know you guys do that it inspires somebody to, to take, take the next step, take the first step. Cause I mean, that's what you have to do. You gotta be willing to at least take the first step. Right. Right. Well, I, again, I appreciate Bobby really, uh, you taking the time to do this. I know this was a long, uh, a long two days of interviewing, but, um, yeah, I just think this story has been very, very um, inspirational and just uh, very intriguing. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this and, and share your story and Ashanti's. Happy to do it. Thank you for thank you for taking the time. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. As always, you can follow us on Instagram. I try and share little snippets and inspiring um, quotes and whatnot from the episodes that we've done. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, feel free to reach out. You can also peruse my website, chriskiefer.net, where I'm just sharing some of my thoughts and reflections on uh, life in general, business, and these episodes. But I really appreciate your attention, and um, I will keep you posted on where this uh, whole story with Ashanti and Bobby goes. So um, we'll see you next time. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.